This is The World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Ukrainian officials said they had discovered a mass grave in Izium, a northeastern town recently recaptured from Russian forces. They claimed that more than 400 bodies had been buried there, including people killed by airstrikes. Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, accused Russia of leaving death everywhere. He promised to share clear, verified information on Friday. Germany seized control of three refineries belonging to Rosneft, Russia's state-owned oil giant. The economy ministry said that a federal regulator will take over the operation of the units, which account for around 12% of the country's oil processing. The move will counter the impending threat to the security of energy supply from Russia, argued the ministry. The Biden administration said it would send an additional $600 million worth of arms to Ukraine, including more high-mobility artillery rocket systems, guided missiles that have wreaked havoc on Russia's army. America has given Ukraine around $15 billion in military assistance since the start of the war. Meanwhile, the Kremlin warned that if America supplied Ukraine with longer-range missiles, it would cross a red line and become party to the conflict. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, acknowledged he must address questions and concerns that Xi Jinping, his Chinese counterpart, has about the invasion. The two chums are attending the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan, which will bring more closely watched tete-a-tetes on Friday. Mr. Chi will meet Ebrahim Raisi, Iran's president, possibly to discuss Iran's stagnant nuclear deal. Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, has an appointment with Mr. Putin. British retail sales dropped significantly by 1.6% in August as consumers were hit by sky-high inflation and energy prices, adding to fears of a coming recession. To avert a downturn, Britain's new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, will introduce an emergency mini-budget on September 23rd, likely to focus on tax cuts aimed at stimulating growth. A judge in America upheld a ruling that temporarily bars the Department of Justice from reviewing thousands of documents seized from Donald Trump's Florida home. The DOJ had appealed against Judge Eileen Cannon's original decision, made last week. It must now wait while an independent arbiter, also appointed on Thursday, decides which documents can potentially be used as evidence in its ongoing criminal investigation against the former president. A study found that climate change played a significant role in the recent devastating flooding in Pakistan. World Weather Attribution, a global network of climate modellers, reckons that anthropogenic global warming made rainfall across the country 75% more intense than it might otherwise have been. Almost 1,500 people have died in the floods. And facts of the day. $30 billion. The estimated cost of Pakistan's floods, equivalent to 9% of GDP. And now here's a deeper look at the day ahead. NATO boosts its eastern front. Military chiefs from 30 NATO countries will meet in Tallinn, the Estonian capital, on Friday to discuss the new strategic concept agreed at the alliance's most recent summit in June. The aim is to shore up the Eastern Front 
and make NATO better able to respond to Russia. The alliance has changed since the invasion of Ukraine. Not only is it expanding, but military commanders are writing new regional defense plans as to which national forces would defend which geographic areas in the event of a war. Last week, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO's secretary general, said that the alliance was sending a message to Moscow about our readiness to defend every inch of Allied territory. He also called for member states to send more weapons to Ukraine. Those are still needed. But Ukraine's stunning counteroffensive has left NATO's number one adversary looking weakened. A renewed air of confidence may prevail in Tallinn. A semblance of normality in Russia's economy. Immediately after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, its economy appeared to be collapsing. The ruble tanked. Regulators had to close the stock market. Economists penciled in a GDP decline of up to 15% in 2022. It has not quite worked out that way. In one month since the invasion, the ruble has made up its losses. Since peaking at 17.8% in April, inflation has steadily fallen. That has allowed the central bank to ease monetary policy, something it is likely to do again on Friday. Already below their pre-war level, interest rates are likely to be cut again. To some degree, Russia has managed to reorient its trading and investment relationships eastwards. The government has also deployed judicious fiscal stimulus, while households and firms have continued to spend and invest. Most importantly, Western sanctions have largely avoided impairing Russia's exports of oil and gas, the global prices of which have soared. That leaves the central bank free to step on the monetary gas. Azerbaijan attacks Armenia. Erdogan meets Putin. The guns have yet to cool in Armenia and Azerbaijan, where a deadly two-day conflict earlier this week was stopped by a truce on Thursday. Across the Caspian Sea in Uzbekistan, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, will take up the issue with his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, on the sidelines of a summit on Friday. Turkey is a firm backer of Azerbaijan. In 2020, Mr. Erdogan's government supplied the country with drones, military advisors, and Syrian mercenaries, enabling it to recapture the ethnic Armenian enclave of Nargono-Karabakh. Russia, for its part, has a mutual defense treaty with Armenia, but also has good relations with Azerbaijan. That allowed it to broker a ceasefire between the pair in 2020. Bogged down in Ukraine, Russia wants to avoid fresh fighting. Turkey, meanwhile, is more likely to demand that Armenia recognize Azerbaijan's sovereignty over Nagorno-Karabakh in exchange for peace. Mr. Putin and Mr. Erdogan know how to wage proxy wars while maintaining cordial relations. Expect them to agree to disagree in Uzbekistan. Ramaphosa escapes the ANC to D.C. 
When Cyril Ramaphosa visits the White House on Friday, he will be glad to put some distance between him and his troubles at home. South Africa's president, who must win re-election as leader of the ruling African National Congress in December, is under pressure from internal enemies and frustrated voters. In Washington, D.C., though, he can expect charm and flattery. Almost half of African countries, including South Africa, have declined to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the U.N., so America has sought to reaffirm its commitment to the continent. Last month, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, set out the Biden administration's Africa strategy, promising support for development and a more equal, less patronizing relationship. This reflects America's rivalry with China as much as with Russia. For all its flaws, South Africa remains one of Africa's most powerful states, and critical to realizing America's policy. Yet White House officials may find that Mr. Ramaphosa has no desire to pick sides. Non-alignment suits his country just fine. David Bowie on screen David Bowie's music often dealt with his inner world, and yet he sported eye-catching costumes to perform for vast crowds. Moonage Daydream, Brett Morgan's new documentary released on Friday in America and Britain, captures Bowie in his own words, unencumbered by others' opinions, while imparting an overwhelming sense of just how crowded his life could be. Music biopics are having a moment, and Bowie holds obvious appeal for ambitious filmmakers. Yet Moonage Daydream paints a far more intimate portrait of its subject than do recent films about Elvis, Freddie Mercury, and Elton John. Mr. Morgan has carefully selected archive footage to create a razor-sharp portrait of Bowie. On occasion, he overreaches. The film is more interested in Bowie's philosophy and art than his relationships and the people around him. At one point, Bowie reflects that I put myself through everything to grow into the artist he became. This extraordinary, almost extreme film puts the viewer through a comparable experience. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Friday Which science fiction novel by Aldous Huxley describes a population kept content by a drug called Soma? Thursday what is the real name of the Hulk, a Marvel superhero? The winners of last week's crossword. Thank you to everyone who took part in our new weekly crossword published in the weekend edition of Espresso. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Yumi Arima, Tokyo, Japan, North America, Amy Weston, Seattle, United States. 
Central and South America. Diego Escobar, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Europe. Christian Jacobson, Aris, Denmark. Africa. Nils Pierce, Quatacusa, South Africa. Oceania, Alex Hill, Perth, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of House of Sod, Health, Obese, and Dollar. Check back tomorrow for this week's crossword. Finally, here's the quote of the day from B.B. King, who was born on this day in 1925. The beautiful thing about learning is nobody can take it away from you. That's the world in brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.